Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we'll examine the latest developments in the conflict, talk about the impact of Russia cutting off gas supplies from Poland and Bulgaria, and report on the tensions on the Moldovan border. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's the 27th of April, day 63. And today, I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols, Energy Correspondent Rachel Millard and Verity Bowman from our foreign team. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. There's been limited movement in the last 24 hours. Uh, Russian forces have continued to build up in and around the Donbass. They have made uh, minor gains in a small small number of villages. But um, in a brief this morning with Western officials, they were saying that against genuine military objectives, well-defended military objectives, Russia is still finding it very difficult to overcome uh, staunch Ukrainian resistance and they are suffering significant casualties. Um, in the south... Those fighting is continuing in uh, Mariupol, uh, although there is some evidence that Russia has started to redeploy some of the forces from there. Uh, We've mentioned before how it will take some time before those forces are in any shape at all to to, um, contribute meaningfully to a fight in the Donbass, having been uh, deployed for quite some weeks in Mariupol, but there is some movement down there. Uh, Also in the south, um, around the, uh, the city of Hezon, the first city... Uh, to fall to Russia. Uh, Russian uh, forces trying to advance beyond there, trying to push around um, to, to move towards Mikolaev and possibly even further west to Odessa and even further west than that, potentially to Transnistria, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But they are, every time they seem to move around uh, Kherson, they're, they're, they're hit by um, pretty ferocious counterattacks. And so they're not, they're not really making uh, any advances uh, there. So, um, a bit, a bit of pushing and shoving along the along the the line of contact, but um, but no no meaningful advances from Russian forces uh, over the last day. Thanks, Dom. Um, let's talk about this fairly astonishing story about U.S. spies aiding uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, Verity Bowman, what's 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 actually happening? So it's become clear that the U.S. has helped Ukraine a lot to block some Russian advances, and they're sharing some pretty detailed intelligence. So Ukraine knew when and where Russian bombs would fall. It's pretty unprecedented. So US spies have even managed to share the coordinates of Russian forces and aircrafts to Ukrainians. And this means that they have been able to preempt attacks. So one example that we have is intelligence allowing Ukraine to shoot down a Russian plane. 
which was carrying hundreds of troops to Hostomol Airport, and this was in the Kiev suburbs in the early days of the war. So Russian forces did capture this airport for a short amount of time, but what happened was that they couldn't manage to use it as an airbridge to fill the resources and catch Kiev. It was pretty huge that they were able to stop this because it helped to block Moscow's hopes of, you know, filling the area with troops and equipment. And it was a big blow of their effort to take the capital. And then sometimes we've seen that American intelligence has meant that Ukraine repositions its air defense systems or planes just before they were targeted. And we also know that the CIA have been working to protect um, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, as he's a top target for Moscow. At the onset of the invasion, U.S. officials have barred um, intelligence that, you know, could lead to a lethal attack on Russia. They were worried that it could pull Washington into a conflict with Moscow and, you know, it was a dicey situation to be in. But now, as we have had more clarity on just how bad the Russian atrocities are, these constraints have been removed. And I think it's important to note that it's not just the strength of U.S. intelligence that must be credited. But, you know, Ukraine has actually been acting upon this and they've been acting upon this very effectively. Thanks, Verity. Um, Dom Nichols, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, so we've known for some time that there's been uh, sharing, intelligence sharing. Um, there's There's a gulf between doing nothing and standing alongside people fighting with with allies um there is nothing wrong with supplying weapons or arms and, and providing training to one side uh, one belligerent in a conflict uh i don't see there's anything wrong with providing intelligence as well i don't think this crosses some kind of escalatory line um russia would seek to have it the other way there was um after james heapy the british uh, Minister for the Armed Forces, so the, the Deputy Defence Secretary, if you like, he made comments uh, yesterday saying that saying that there's um, you know nothing wrong with Britain and other countries supplying arms to to Ukraine. This was met with a fairly a fairly sort of one dimensional response from Russia, saying no, 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 that's that's completely completely off the cards, and and there there could be retaliatory strikes in those countries. I mean, this is it, it is not again, it is not it is not illegitimate is not against international law to supply weapons to a belligerent in com- in conflict it is against international law for one of those belligerents or any other country to, to to start attacking a third party because of they're providing that assistance so russia's saying that they they consider retaliatory retaliatory strikes that was completely uh, outrageous um not not unsurprising i suppose but it um that that is not correct they sh- they they cannot do that and Britain and other Western donors are are not um, parties to the conflict in that they are fighting. There's a, there there is a number of international legal niceties here, um, and I am on the edge of my jigsaw. So, any of our listeners who know more about the the legal side of this, I'd be very very happy to to engage with them to see where where we are in this. But yeah, Britain and other donors are not belligerents to this to this conflict at the moment. Um, on the, the the so the intelligence sharing the, these reports that it um, the one of the actions that it uh, has supposedly contributed to was the downing of the IL seventy six the Aleutian uh, transport aircraft earlier in the war in the in and around the attack on Hostomel Airport. I would just sound a note of caution here. There's been lots of talk about uh, IL seventy six being shot down. There were actually early in the in the war there were reports that two IL seventy sixes had been shot down. These are huge troop troop carrying 
aircraft, exactly the kind of thing you need to, to land in a, in, a, in a foreign airfield if you're going to do an air assault operation and then try and launch into Kiev, for example, which is what Russian were trying to do. Um, there, I've not seen any evidence, and credible sources that I speak to also have not seen any evidence, photographic evidence, of a massive transport aircraft with hundreds of casualties um, anywhere. So uh, I think I think it's it's correct to say that there has been intelligence sharing between the US and, and others with Ukraine. I would I would pause at that point and not continue the, the second half of that sentence and say, and it led to the shooting down of an IL-76 with hundreds of Russian troops on it. So we've just got to, as I said, I said right at the start of this war, we are we are in a battle for the truth here with Russia. They will seize on any, any opportunity to say that we're that we're talking hogwash, we're making it up, that we're propaganda tool, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So where where I'm not sure about the information, I'll be very happy to flag that up, um, and happy to be proved wrong. But in this instance, I just want to sound a note of caution about that that supposed IL-76 shootdown. But yes, intelligence sharing, nothing wrong with that. Supplying of arms. Nothing wrong with that. That does not cross any international uh, legal boundaries. Thanks, Dom. Um, Rachel Millard, thank you very much for for your time today. Can we turn to you? Um, Yesterday, Moscow said it was suspending gas supplies um, to Poland and Bulgaria. What's happening? Um, What's the story about? Why are they doing this? And what will be the impact on the countries involved? So, look, since this war began, really, there's been this... um, long-running question over over what impact it will have on on, on gas supplies, um, whether Europe would stop buying Russian gas in order to um, sort of dent uh, the the money that's going to to Russia or or whether Russia would uh, cut off supplies to Europe um, because it it wants to um, sort of uh, demonstrate its power. Um, uh, This morning, some of that has has come to pass, um, albeit so far in a fairly... Uh, limited way with um, with Russia cutting off supplies to Poland and and Bulgaria, um, so it marks the first time that Russia has um, has uh, has cut off supplies to, to any country since the invasion began. So it's been interpreted as a as a fairly sort of significant um, sort of escalation of of tensions. Um, in terms of the actual impact on on those countries, um, Poland got about half of its gas from Russia last year and Bulgaria about 90%, so both quite reliant. Um, that being said, Poland in particular has been uh, trying to diversify from Russian gas for a while, um, and it's got in place uh, other supplies of gas, such as sort of shipments from other parts of the world, and also a new pipeline from Norway is set to start up later this year, so it's sort of reasonably well positioned, and, and in fact it's... Um, it's uh, it's it, it, it's contract with Gazprom. Russia's gas supply was, was due to come to an end um, later this year. In any case, um, Bulgaria more reliant with, as I say, about ninety percent of its gas coming from Russia. Um, it's also talking to other countries, Turkey and Greece, about trying to import more from more from them. Um, there's been quite a sort of stark sort of diplomatic reaction so far. Po- Poland sort of accused Russia of trying to blackmail. Them and a similar sort of um, reaction coming from from the EU. And the EU has said it's prepared. Um, are they really? And what, what does being prepared actually mean in this? What what can they do? <laughs> well, it's a good question. So the EU overall is is very very is 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 quite reliant on on um, on Russia for gas. So it gets about forty percent overall of its gas from Russia, um, in which there's quite significant sort of country by country variation. So. As, as we said, so Bulgaria, quite reliant. Um, Germany, Italy, quite reliant. Um, since this began, they have all been making efforts to try and source gas from elsewhere. So 
They've uh, got some agreements from the US that it will send more gas um, to, to the EU via uh, sort of shipments of liquefied natural gas. Um, Italy has also been talking with some uh, countries in Africa and, and has struck, uh, struck up some new deals with um, Algeria and others for, for more gas to come from those countries. Um, they're also looking at uh, sort of just diversifying from gas, uh, so using other sources of energy. Some some are looking at keeping coal-fired power plants on for a bit longer. Um, you know, possible sort of re- return to sort of nuclear power plants in some countries. Um, but look, in reality, it, they import vast amounts of Russian gas. It's going to be very difficult for them to manage without it. Um, it's going to have a very severe ec- economic impact. Uh, many analysts are you know talking about. Um, the likelihood of, of some sort of gas rationing if if Russian supplies were to be cut off, so that would involve industry, sort of heavy industry, basically being asked to use less gas. Um, it would take a while for that to to filter through to households because they would be protected, but um, certainly it, it would be a pretty severe shock and, and and not easy to deal with it at all. And can I ask just? Quickly, um, why is Russia asking um, these countries to be pay, to pay in rubles? What's what's the thinking there? So it's a good question. I think it's been interpreted in, in, in various ways. Um, one of them is simply that it wants it's trying to kind of shore up the ruble um, in the face of, of sanctions and, and the various other sort of economic uh, constraints being being put on Russia. So it's just trying to shore up the currency. Um, and another interpretation is simply that it's just trying to put sort of obstacles in in the in 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 place just to show that it can just to demonstrate how reliant um, people are on its on its on its gas and you know make life complicated for them and to kind of uh, show that you know EU might want to try and put some sanctions in place against Russia but it can sort of find ways around that because the EU is so reliant on on, on its energy. Is there anything else to say about this story, or should, should we move on to Transnistria? Um, at this particular moment, I think I think the the key thing now is is whether this uh, this is a, a precedent for other countries, and whether uh, we'll see we'll see more countries be cut off from from Russian gas supplies in the coming um, weeks. Um, there are some deadlines coming up for uh, payments for Russian gas, which could be a sort of uh, uh, you know crunch point at which we'll, we'll see Russia cut off other countries. So I think I think that's the main concern now. Thank you very much, Rachel. We'll come back to you later on. Um, Verity and Tom, can I turn to, to both of you to talk a little bit more about Transnistria um, in Moldova? Um, Verity, you've been you've been reading some of the messages being sent to uh, to, to Transnistrians. Um, what are they saying? What's happening over there? Um, okay, so I'll start back from the beginning on this. There is a village in it's a pro-separatist region of Moldova. And there is a village that has a major ammunition depot and that actually came under fire this morning. So the interior minister said that locals spotted combat drones flying in from Ukraine to the village, which is Kabazna. And later in the day, some unknown attackers fired at the village. Luckily, we've not had any reports of casualties. But we should keep an eye on this because it could mean that the conflict is edging closer to Moldova. It's part of a new round of unexplained attacks in Transnistria, and these have all hit critical infrastructure. And what we're seeing coming from this is Ukraine and Russia blaming each other for the attacks. Yesterday, we heard of two TV and radio towers that carry signal for Russian broadcasters um, were damaged in an explosion, and the the building of the regional security headquarters in the capital was actually badly damaged as well um, and this was done with propelled rocket grenades 
Again, more finger pointing at Ukraine. And then what I've seen today are some pretty scaremongering text messages that have been sent to locals. I saw a copy of one of these earlier this morning, and it told people that they will be eliminated with no prior warning by Ukrainian forces. I'm just going to read a bit more of the message for you so you can get a full idea of what we're looking at. So it said the Ukrainian security service highly recommends the evacuation of civilians to safer regions. We would like to assure you that the Ukrainian armed forces do not wish harm on peaceful residents, but those who stay in town will be considered members of sabotage groups and will be eliminated. I actually chatted to a local about this who received this message earlier this morning. And it is kind of good news. She said that she didn't believe it because these messages are traditionally so unreliable. So there are signs that the scaremongering will not have the full impact that whoever is sending these messages is hoping. But this woman who I did track down via social media, which we have spoken about before a few times on this podcast, said that she was worried that the region could still be drawn into the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And she doesn't support the war and she's expressed her sympathies for Ukrainians under attack. She told me that they don't want this. She's hosting refugees in her home and she's helping people. But she is afraid that war could come to her land. Thank you, Verity. Um, Dom Nichols, this seems to... I mean, you've talked before on this podcast about Russian tactics of... What is it? What is it again? It's divert, distract. Um, I can't remember the third thing you said. But d- does this fall in, into the into this into the into this um, into this strategy? Yeah, I think so. So the third one was discredit. So the classic Russian strategic messaging uh, toolkit is to is to divert attention or deny the thing happened in the first place, or discredit the person asking the question, asking the uh, discredit the journalist or the source of the information. Um, I said a few days ago that these these reports that the Russian-speaking minority in the eastern part of Moldova in Transnistria uh, were under under threat and harassment. I, I said that that came from the divert pot, um, and I, I think these. I think a lot of it. No, I think I think all of it is is Russia just trying to um, muddy the waters here. The attacks yesterday on the on the two TV towers. I'm not so sure that 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 may. I, I think that may have been a legitimate Ukrainian attack. Um, remember, Krista Groza from Bellingcat said because that those towers have been taken over by Russia. They've previously been um, transmitting uh, the evangelical uh, radio network uh, Transworld's programs, and and so he he was suggesting that those attacks were either by Ukraine or God. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd rather have them on my side, quite frankly. But um, so those aside, I think the re- I think there's a lot of Russian disinformation, false flag. Um, operations going on i mean the, the language in the, in that text that very just read out about um, you know you're, you're going to be eliminated i mean it's fairly clunky messaging we've not seen anything like that before from ukraine not saying we never will i don't you know i, I haven't seen the text i don't know who sent it but I, it it doesn't seem the most sophisticated information operation that anyone's ever ever stitched together so i i, th- I think i think russia are uh, russia is trying to is trying to broaden the the conflict out there, trying to say to um, its domestic opinion and also to international opinion, this is this is a Western plot. This is NATO. They've turned uh, Ukraine. They've made Ukraine full of Nazis. They've turned them against us. They're now doing the same in Moldova. I think this is them trying to exert a, a dwindling influence over there, near abroad. I mean, uh, Transnistria is small. There's about one thousand five hundred 
Russian military personnel in that area. Their equipment is not um, terribly advanced. It's quite outdated. So this is definitely something to track. But I think we know Russia wants to uh, wants to have that land bridge to Crimea from the from the Russian border proper through the Donbass down to Crimea. There was talk the other day of, of going as far as Transnistria and, and sticking up for the Russian-speaking population in Moldova, who don't seem to be under a massive threat, from what I can see. Um, I mean, I'd be, I'd be extremely surprised if Russia put, put a lot of military effort, um, as in green heavy metal effort, rather than sort of grey FSB effort, into this. Um, they're not able to achieve their wider objectives at the moment. They're, they're, they're trying to operate in the Donbass, and that's that's uh, slow to get out the blocks. So, I mean, any, any push to Transnistria would overextend their supply lines. It really tax their, their capabilities. And, of course, they've got to get there. They've got to get past Mykolaiv. They've got to get through or past Odessa. I mean, this, this, is not, this is not on the cards. There's nothing we've seen so far to make, to make us think that there's a, a huge military threat along that part, that remaining part of the... Uh, Ukraine coastline. So we yes, we should should keep an eye on it. We should track it. Um, it, it looks like this is more more from the grey than the green type of attacks. So I'm not uh, I'm not saying that there's not wor- worse to come, but I, I think this is sort of Russian false flag in a in an effort to uh, to to broaden and widen the the scope of this uh, of this operation. Verity, do you want to come back on any of that? And oh, and also, actually, Verity, I know you've been writing a lot about the Azovstal uh, steel plant in Mariupol, um, so it'd be good to hear some of your thoughts on, on the battle in Mariupol as well before we move back to, to Rachel. Uh, yeah, so I just echo what Dom says, which is that it, you know, it is incredibly difficult for Ukraine, for Russia to mount the idea of going anywhere near Moldova. So I do think it's something that we should err on the side of caution with. And yeah, tracking over, um, flicking over to Mariupol. So we've been seeing an attack on the steel plant there for over a week now. And it's pretty significant because it's the last holdout of Ukrainian forces in Mariupol, which Russians keep saying has fallen to them. But this power plant has not yet. So... Actually, there are hundreds of civilians holed up in there who are living in some pretty dire conditions, which we have mentioned on this podcast before. Um, children are quite ill from a lack of vitamin D and people are worried that they might run out of food soon. So Russia did say there would be a ceasefire, but it isn't happening. Earlier, troops were instructed to block the site so even a fly can't get through, was what Putin said. And they were meant to uh, stop attacks, which basically meant they were kind of aiming to starve people out. Um, Last week, I spoke to a soldier who was just 22 and he was in the power plant. He still is. And he said that the troops would refuse to give up and that they would rather die with their guns in their hands. This really like, actually hit home because he told me about his life before he'd been a very normal young man. And he promised to his family that he would come home safely. And I think it's really important to remember these very human stories behind the conflict um, because it's conflict that can often be dominated by numbers and sweeping overviews of tactical moves and what's going on. So going back to the power plant a bit more, the Russian pledge of no attacks doesn't seem to be going ahead. Ukrainian um, officials say that there is now a whole new level of bombardment against it. And they say there has been around 35 airstrikes over the last 24 hours and that civilians are now trapped and soldiers are working to remove them from the rubble. 
So on Monday, Russia did announce plans to open a humanitarian corridor for civilians to leave the plant, but he was denied reaching any agreement with Russia. And it isn't going ahead as planned. And like I said, a lot of civilians do appear to be trapped. They're not alone, really. We've seen in Mariupol, um, it's around 100,000 civilians have been cut off completely from the outside world under Russian bombardment. And Ukrainian forces have described the situation in the port city as a humanitarian catastrophe. Basically, Western experts believe that Putin was attempting to present some form of victory to the Russian people by saying that Mariupol was under his control. But the power plant does seem to be proving otherwise. Thanks very much, Verity. Um, Turning back to you, Rachel Millard, our energy correspondent, um, this is the first time you've been on this space as this podcast. Um, Obviously, this is, what, day 63 of the war now? Um, Could you give us your take on on the conflict? How has it impacted the sector you cover? And what should listeners know about the the, the energy war, which, as we've seen, has flared up this morning? Sure. I mean, it's had an absolutely um, enormous impact on on the sector. Um, Russia is one of the largest oil and gas producers globally. So um, it's having a huge impact on on, on both of those those markets. Um, I mean, even though the sort of sanctions on Russian oil and gas actually aren't that great. I mean, the EU, for example, has not yet sanctioned the oil and gas um, that directly because it is so dependent on those supplies. Um, Even that being the case, there traders are traders and and countries all all around the world are sort of looking for um, supplies from other parts of the world, um, either because they're concerned about getting caught in sanctions or because they're you know worried about the um, the ethics of, of funding uh, Russia so it's causing huge disruption to, to markets as, as countries and, and traders sort of look for other sources of supply and uh, causing you know huge uh, huge pressure on prices um, at a time when when they've already been very high I mean gas prices started climbing in about September um, of last year, and, uh, and and there's no sign of them going down as long as all this is still uh, still going on. And just because we we are a, a British newspaper, how does all of this affect the UK and the UK's energy market? Yeah, so it's already having a huge huge effect in the in the UK. So um, uh, I suppose the the most the impact that households will feel most um, most severely is is probably the impact on the on the gas price. So. Um, the UK doesn't get much gas directly from Russia. We get we get a sort of less than four percent, uh, which comes in uh, in the form of sort of liquefied natural gas on on ships. And um, uh, nonetheless, because we're connected to the European market, which, um, as mentioned earlier, is, is very heavily reliant on Russia, um, our prices kind of follow those in the continent. So, uh, you know, disruption of Russian gas ha- has an effect on on UK prices uh, exactly in the same way it does in the continent, even if we're not. Um, importing quite so much directly. Um, we've already seen this uh, feed through very directly into households. So the main um, driver of the uh, increase in household energy bills, which came into force in April, is those very high gas prices. Um, I should say that those gas prices actually predated the Ukraine war, um, but uh, Russia's influence on gas markets is part of the reason why they were high in any case. So it's certainly all all connected. Um, oil prices being high obviously affects motorists every day. We're seeing very, very high um, petrol pump prices at the moment, and and that is is also directly connected to the sort of disruption to markets caused by by the war. Thanks, Rachel. There's just one final question I want to ask you because um, I think it's 
it's potentially dem demonstrative of what Russian authorities plan to do with Western assets as com companies leave the country. Um, we learned today that Renault, the French car maker, is going to offload its stake in Russian business for one ruble. What's, what's happening there? Why one ruble? Uh, so it seems that um, there's, at the moment there's this very sort of uh, big effort from lots of uh, Western companies to try and uh, get out of Russia, um, partly just because they're sort of appalled at what's going on and so they, they want to send a sort of strong message um, that, that they're not going to work um, with with Russia, and so uh, Renault is one of, of many companies um, trying to do this. And I think the issue for all these companies is that there isn't really anyone who's going to want to um, buy these stakes at the moment. You know, if, if they don't want to be there, then nor do other people. Um, so their options are very limited. So uh, I think we'll see potentially more companies um, having to sort of. Uh, you know, uh, achieve sort of no, no value for for their stakes in various Russian businesses that they're trying to um, get out of. Thank you Thank very you. very much, Rachel. Um, Dominic Nichols, you um, you spoke earlier to me before we went live about a report in Russia that you'd seen, um, which had a different theory about what Russia might aim for with the May the ninth uh, VE day. VE day. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? What does it say? Yeah, this is a report by RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, a think tank here in London. I'd urge everyone to go and have, go and have a look at the website. They, uh, they're good guys, good guys, good people. They know know what they're talking about, and they put a put a report up a few days ago, actually. And there's been bits and pieces of it uh, trickled out through the press, but it is worth going and reading. It's quite short, so it's, it's worth going and having a look. Um, it's titled Operation Z: The Death Throes of an Imperial Delusion. So you know, there we go. Sort of nail the colours to the mast. Um, but they were saying that um, they were kind of giving a giving a recap of what where Russia's gone wrong so far. Um, there's a number of different areas to dig into about how they've not been able to um, use ground very well. They've not moved off not moved off paved services, which has which has led to logistic problems and led them to being very vulnerable to Ukrainian artillery fire. They also talk about the number of components, uh, Western-sourced components in their precision-guided munitions and a lot of the other high-tech uh, equipment they've been using and how that's drying up and how they've got to, got to try and source that from elsewhere. And there's just not the, their assessment is just not the domestic infrastructure. The industry is not there in Russia to produce some of these very high-spec components. A lot of them, they say a lot of, a lot of these components are, are dual-use, so they might be able to get... Um, uh, sort of vehicles and other other sort of he heavy machinery in from elsewhere, and then repurpose some of the some of the um, some of the chips and microprocessors and, and so on and so forth. But uh, it's just a, it was a good point that the longer this, the longer the war drags on, the more you then do come into the um, military industrial complex issues as well. Uh, so that was that was uh, that was quite an interesting uh, side to it. But one of the main points they were talking about was. Uh, May the 9th. We talked about May the 9th before. This is Victory Day parade in Russia. It happens every year. It marks the, the end of the Second World War, the great patriotic war uh, in Russia, in Russia's terminology, the victory over Nazi Germany from the Second World War. And there was talk that uh, there's been talk that May the 9th is going to be was going to be the date that Putin wanted to announce victory himself in, in this war. Um, that has been down downgraded. I mean, extremely unlikely that he. Well, I mean, he can't. He can't declare victory. Extremely unlikely that he's going to be able to declare any kind of uh, small victory in the the Donbass or uh, elsewhere. Um, it might try and claim something about Mariupol, but um, I think we can all see the lie for that. Um, 
So, so what, what is May the 9th going to be? I mean, all, and almost certainly it's not going to be a nice parade, wave a few flags, have a look at some missiles in Red Square, etc., etc. And there's, there's talk in the, in the paper that he will use this, this event um, to address a number of concerns that they're facing, that he's facing at the moment. One of the, one of the concerns is he needs, he needs personnel. He's running out of soldiers, not got enough um, and he's breaking the ones that he's got. So he's, he needs a load of soldiers. Um, they do have conscripts in the Russian army. The, the annual intake is just about to... Uh, or sorry, last year's annual intake is just about to finish their, their 12-month term. Um, so he could he could extend that and say, no, you can't, you can't go home. You've got to stay in, stay in uniform. He could call up more reserves. He could uh, widen the age bracket of those people who are eligible for... Um, for military service or reserve service and what have you. I mean, all of these things, even in Russian society, um, will be controversial, even in a society that is used to not questioning the Kremlin's uh, edicts. This will not be... This will be notable and it will, and it will be resisted in some, in some form. So the point, the point is Putin's going to have to have something big in order to, to make that, uh, that pill easier to swallow. Secondly, he needs to uh, broaden out the war, and this might be what's happening in Transnistria at the moment. He's, he's trying now to, to, to couch this war, to frame this war as a battle between ideologies, between Russia and the West, and he's trying to point, uh, paint, paint the West in the guise of NATO um, as, as this, this sort of evil conglomerate that's, that's doing everything in its power to stymie Russia's legitimate ambitions to dominate its near abroad. Um, and to do that, he needs friends. We saw yesterday in Ramstein, in the US airbase in Germany, where there were 40 uh, defence ministers from 40 nations, in, including Ukraine. Mr Reznikov uh, went to Germany. Um, there's international resolve against this war. This is not just NATO. This is not NATO saying it's us against Russia. This is not a proxy war. Um, there's international resolve saying this is unacceptable behaviour in the 21st century. So... Putin needs friends. He needs them. He needs them fast, and he needs them big. So, by trying to portray this as a, as as the West, um, just just taking what it wants from from the world, from from history, and saying right now it's just Russia that's standing in the way of the West. But you know, who Africa, you know, South America, you'll be next after after us. They're going to come for you. He's going to try and couch it in these terms. So he's desperate to broaden out um, this this war into into bigger issues than just um than his own his own legacy or for whatever whatever warped reasons he thinks it was legitimate and correct to to invade ukraine now both of those things um don't sit well with the narrative that this is a small you know quote unquote special military operation i mean that that is that speaks of as he as he hoped it would be 96 hours in and out cut the head head off in in kiev job done i mean that obviously didn't happen and this special military operation is now is now not looking very special at all um and so he's got to he's got to up the stakes he's got to sort of bring russian society around to accepting that this is through no fault of his own through no fault of the russian militaries this is all the nazis and the western nato who's done this but this is no longer a small-scale um spat in a in a part of russia that that had had a a historical holiday and called itself Ukraine for a few years. This is this is much bigger, and we are we Russia are reluctantly having to to up the ante in order to to to, um, to sort this out once and for all. Now, so we can't do all that and still call it a special military operation. 
So, so what does he need to do? What's the word that he's been avoiding at all costs, um, such that it's now punishable by 15 years in jail, if journalists use the word in, in Russia? It's war. So there's a chance that he might use the May the 9th Victory Day parade to say, actually, we're in a war. It's not of our choosing. It's not of our um, desire, but, but we're in it. The West has forced this on us. Um, the Ukrainian stooges, the, the Nazified Ukrainian stooges doing the bidding of the West, they've dragged us into this war. I need extra people. We need um, uh, to draw on the youth of the country, etc., etc. You, you, you know, see it sort of writes itself. Um, and he'll also be turning around at the same time and saying to, to, the, to the, the, those countries whose, uh, dare I say, ethics are for hire, have not yet come out to denounce the war. And he's saying, look, you know, this is, it's much bigger than than what we thought it was going to be. These, these guys are, are, are dug in deep, these, these, these Nazis. It's riddled throughout society. So we, we, we are reluctantly being dragged into a war not of our choosing. So I, I just posit those ideas. I, I've, I've, I may have wandered a little bit off course from, from what the, the authors of the paper, uh, maybe slightly more inflammatory language, but not that far, to be perfectly honest. I urge you to go and read the paper. It's suggesting that May the 9th might be the moment when Putin doubles down on this on this conflict rather than trying to look for a way out he, he's digging in for the long term because it's not going well and he needs money friends and cash fast thank you very much dom nichols uh Ferretine, rachel uh anything to mention on top of that or anything else about the conflict in the last 24 hours that you'd like to bring up and we haven't mentioned um, well, I think I'd just like to echo what Dom finished with there, that we're waiting for Putin. You know, he doesn't have enough weapons. He's going to have to consider men and he's going to have to consider his different friends and backers and that he is desperate, that he doesn't want to broaden this war. And something that I would like to mention that also popped in the news today that is a little bit less serious is that Ukrainians have started pulling down statues that are related to the Russian regime. So there was a statue of friendship that we saw in one city and it was actually pulled down today. We saw it fall to the ground, the head roll off. And this is something we're seeing across Ukraine. You know, they are standing up and saying that there is no friendship between us and that they do not want the symbols of Russia in their country. Thank you very much. Uh, Rachel Miller, can we get your final thoughts on um, what, to look th- what to look for in the next few weeks and maybe even this week in terms of energy and energy, energy policy? Uh, sure. So I think the, the really um, key thing will be c- coming up will be, um, as mentioned earlier, whether, whether Russia starts to cut off other European countries and whether the, uh, its decision to cut off Poland and Bulgaria will, um, will sort of... Uh, uh, trigger the EU to a- act a bit more quickly um, and uh, and and bring in more um, restrictions or indeed restrictions at all um, against r- Russian oil and gas, um, which would, as mentioned, kind of have pretty severe consequences for the EU, but seems to be sort of uh, coming becoming more and more likely as as, as tensions escalate. So I think things are only going to get more uh, more difficult from from here on in. Thanks, Rachel. And Dominic Nichols, would you like the the final words? What should we be looking for in the next few days? Thanks. So I think the the next few days, uh, we we should look, as Ferris has just been talking about symbology, um, keep an eye out on the number 77. It's uh, 77 years since the end of the Great Patriotic War, and 77, the the figures, the numeral 77, 77, look a bit like the Z that's been purloined by 
by Russia. It's, not, it's a tactical recognition marker, but it, I mean, it's not in the Cyrillic alphabet, but it's been being used as a, a sort of pro-war symbol. So Z has now been sort of, it's morphing into 77. So you'll see those around the place that if you're wondering why 77 is being, being sort of scrawled about and around, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the latest Russian pro-war symbol. Um, symbology matters. And, and I've said, I said right at the start of this, I don't know why, once the, once the, the Z thing started taking hold, Ukraine have been brilliant at their information operations. I don't know why they've not tried to reclaim that, reclaim Z as their own figure and completely take the carpet out from underneath the Russian uh, propaganda tool. I mean, they've got, they've got, in this fight, they've got the greatest Z there is. They've got the Zelensky. I mean, he's, he's proved himself to be, you know, an amazing um, uh, communicator and, and the way to, to galvanise his society and, and the international society and speak to people across every, at every level, military, civilian, political, etc., etc. So I don't know why Ukraine aren't trying to reclaim that Z and say it's theirs. And never mind the Z and 77 and all this sort of nonsense. Um, they, sh- they, should be, they should be sort of printing Z all over T-shirts and saying, yeah, we love it. As many, the more Zs, the better. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Sophie Cope.